Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Souter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Liberal news bias in the media has long been a hot-button issue for in American politics and society, going back to at least to Vice President Spiro Agnew's famous reference to the nattering nabobs of negativity. Today's social media has largely supplanted legacy media, but the issue remains hotly contested. Social media is dominated by several large companies, and they use algorithms to allegedly identify and remove content that violates their conditions of use. Conservatives and libertarians, however, seem to get banned more frequently than others, or have their statements flagged by uh, these unelected fact-checkers as disinformation. Many people allege that social media engages in censorship against anyone standing up against Silicon Valley's progressive values. What exactly, though, is censorship, and what are some options to counter social media bias if it is a problem? And do we really want to empower uh, government to police media companies further? Join me on to the show today is Cameron Schulte of the Heartland Institute. He serves as their Director of Government Relations. Mr. Schulte studies, studied at Marquette University in Wisconsin, and he worked for the uh, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty and Freedom Works before joining Heartland. Heartland has been a leader on addressing social media bias, which, will, as we will see today, is a, one where small government libertarians have some serious disagreements. Well, welcome to the conversations, Cameron. No, thank you for having me, Dan. Thank, glad to be here. Now, just uh, in case any of our viewers simply use uh, Facebook to share pictures of, of their, their children and, and pets, uh, tell us a little bit about how it is that uh, social media have really sort of uh, become so important for news and communications, especially since unlike the old like, newspapers or, or TV shows, they're not doing reporting themselves. But yet there's, they're, they're very important now in, in, our, in our media, in our news media environment, right? Yeah. So as, as it is today, the three largest social media platforms, Facebook, uh, YouTube and Twitter control 97% of all social media traffic. So you have your Instagrams and others, but those three firms, all social media traffic travels for those through those three firms. They've effectively become the modern town square, right? Where mm -hmm. the Supreme Court has, has ruled um, that government cannot sanction speech on government property. And to that end, even they've said that there are certain communications technologies that are 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 not allowed to to be censored or that cannot censor rather based on viewpoint and mm -hmm. and in accord with 
uh, our First Amendment rights, such things like the Postal Service or Ma Bell, which is now AT&T mm. and others. They have to allow the free flow of all content. And if the government doesn't like that, they have uh, that's just too bad. And if the government wants to know what's being said, they have to go through the courts to get access to your mail and your phone conversations. And what we basically um, landed on as an organization is the idea that perhaps social media companies need to be treated as common carriers in the way that we treat AT&T or in the way we treat the Postal Service, that they should not be allowed to censor political viewpoints. Um, certainly they can censor content, but they should not be allowed to censor viewpoint. And, you know, I know that sounds like a distinction without a difference, but it is a, a, a fairly steadfast legal principle that it's the censorship, the viewpoint rather, is, is where you're coming from, your position, whereas, you know, Section 230 uh, of the 1996 Communications uh, Decency Act does not allow for lewd, lascivious, filthy, uh, excessively violent, uh, or harassing content. They are free to remove that um, that content. But our what we're we're trying to get to the the crux of what we're trying to get at is is political viewpoint. We're not. We're, we've we've heard in several instances as pushback against this idea is well it, to to institute policies like this your ISIS will be able to recruit on social media and child pornographers and school shootings will have free reign of the internet and that's just simply not the case. What we're saying is that free speech, our First Amendment rights, it, nay, are very identity as Americans is rooted in free speech, and that's sacrosanct. It's a first principle. And the government is is not saying, telling you what you have to remove. We're just saying that in, in this case, it's not a big government solution. It's rather the government saying, you need to allow a full, robust political discourse on your platforms if you're going to command such market share. No. I mean, we all know that uh, President Trump got permanently banned from, from Twitter. So there's certainly some examples that we, we've seen about this. But, you know, also psychologists warn us, and I think we know from our own personal experience, you know, we might always think that, like, our favorite team never gets good calls from the, the ref. And, 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 like, I, you know, psychologists warn us that, that we, can be, we can have some very biased perceptions ourselves. So bias sometimes exists in, in the, the eye of the beholder, not in, in reality. Is there any, you know, like, what, what's the evidence showing us that really it, it truly is? It's not just like a, a once in a while um, somebody gets banned or, or somebody gets their, their speech restricted, uh, but that there's actually some kind of a, a systematic uh, uh, une unequalness going on here. Well, let's, let's just take, we'll, we'll deal with the anecdotes first, right? There, there's no shortage of anecdotes. We, work, we worked really closely with a legislator, um, a neighbor of, of, of yours, effectively, um, a woman from Southwest Louisiana, whose pastor was censored or was shadow banned or deplatformed. And, and you have, there, there's no shortage of examples. Obviously, we know that the president 
and has been deplatformed and no longer has has a Twitter account. But this is bigger, actually, than say President Trump. It, it this this has little to nothing to do with President Trump. This is about these three firms controlling 97% of the market. And what we're seeing is that you have a Biden administration and members of Congress and others who actively work with the social media companies to basically steer the conversation on those platforms. Um, the Biden administration has come out and said, yes, we work hand in glove with Facebook to control COVID and vaccine misinformation. Well, what we knew about COVID and vaccines in 2021 is different than what we know in 2022. And it's not so much that the debate around COVID and vaccines, it's more that the government's working hand in glove with these platforms to steer a very big public debate and an important debate. No. We talk a little bit about censorship. Now, many, I guess, uh, libertarians and even conservatives would, might say that, well, only the government can truly censor because the, it's the government that can you know, prevent anybody from transacting with you. And at one level, all Twitter can do is if they don't like you, they can ban your, they can uh, uh, suspend your account and, and, and ban you permanently from their site. They can't actually stop you from going to some other social media company and, uh, you know, and dealing with them. So is it, is it fair, do you think, you know, I mean, like where, where do we draw the line here? Is it, is it really and truly censorship? Is it something that's closely enough related that we want to call it censorship? Uh, what do you think here? Well, on this, and, and again, I, 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 I am loath to sound like I'm just regurgitating talking points. I mean, your viewers deserve a fuller, robust conversation than me to fall back on my talking points. But I, 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 I cannot stress enough, 97% of social media traffic, we're talking worldwide, that's billions of users. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the United States, what is it, one in three people regularly use social media in some way or another. The, this is where people are getting their political content or their news. This is where people are, grandmas are seeing pictures of their grandchildren. This is where I share pictures of my son playing baseball and I share pictures of my daughter getting her driver's license, those sorts of things. But when we're having and a robust political discourse on social media, it behooves them to make sure that that debate is, is unfettered, that we're having a full, honest discussion among everybody and not just something that it fits a narrative. Because, you know, a, a good example, and I, again, and I'm loath to use this example, but it's, it's actually a very good example, is that in the fall of 2020, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube would not allow the New York Post to share information about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, for those who aren't familiar, Hunter Biden is the president's son who has had um, all manner of challenges in his life, um, but 
he the the they there were documents on the laptop that suggested that he was involved in some sort of nefarious dealings with China and Ukraine, etc. Well, anyway, the intelligence community came out and said, "Oh, that looks like Russian disinformation." It was within weeks of the election, and the White House called it uh, Russian disinformation. And Twitter basically told the New York Post and Facebook told the New York Post, nope, you cannot share it on your social media platform. This, it's unverified. Well, you know, fast forward almost two years later, there's no doubt about the veracity of the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. And that's a very good example of how the government colluded with social media to manage a narrative to in what looks like political interference in an election. Whether that's what it was or not, smarter people than me are going to debate. But as a political operative, I can tell you that perception is reality. And that's how many Americans felt, was that there's a set of standards for them, and then there's a different set of standards for a political elite that manage information flow. I've run a research on uh, media bias and the legacy media, and one of the issues that, from an economic standpoint, that, that comes up there is that if a uh, you know if, if a, a news organization is going to be say biased against conservatives, at one level, all they're going to do is hurt themselves financially. They will lose. They will alienate uh, a good chunk of their audience or a potential audience. And, and so it would seem that one of the objections you'd have to come over, one of the things you have to factor is, well, like, why are these corporations willing to give up profit? Why are they not pursuing profit? So you know, do you, and the same thing should apply here, because if, if you are going to ban a bunch of conservatives or drive them away from uh, uh, Twitter or, or Facebook, then it would seem you're only going to hurt your bottom line, because they won't be your users. You'll alienate them. Uh, do you think that these um, the, the big three media companies are actually willing to do this? Because you know, I guess that's one of the things you have to say. You know, Google tries to make a lot of money, and, and, and so you know, are they really willing to get? You know, are they really willing to hurt their bottom line in, in this case? Well, I'm. I will tell you when I've met with policymakers and lawmakers and and talked to others in in the center right movement. I am absolutely not insensitive to um, that perspective. You know, as a capitalist, as a free market thinker myself, as an advocate for free markets um, with a pretty strong libertarian bent, I'm not insensitive to the, to, to the point you're making that this is, should, is, isn't the market going to kind of self-correct on this? And isn't there a financial incentive? I used to joke with my friend, that you know, frankly, I trust Jeff Bezos with my health care that more than I trust the government with my health care right. because Jeff Bezos has a profit motive to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. But the government has no such motive. So I'm not insensitive to that. But what we're seeing in practice, for whatever reason, and I I have not seen that data, but we do know that the people who run these companies, who work at these companies are driven in large measure by ideology and not their fiduciary responsibility. Okay. And if that's how we're going to approach 
public discourse and the corporatization, there are certain first principles that we ought to hold sacrosanct. First, first Amendment rights being one of them. No, I guess then the other economics come back on this would be say, well, if, if they're going to alienate so many of their potential users or, or viewers, at some point, some other entrepreneur should come into the market and you know, attempt to serve them. And we saw that with the legacy media. Eventually, you know, Rupert Murdoch came in and, and uh, started Fox News and you know, competed and, and really sort of broke up the, the uh, cartel, uh, so, so to speak. So, you know, one level, economists might look and then say, well, if, if we just give it enough time, we'll see maybe uh, President Trump's uh, truth social will, will, will be it. Maybe it will be something else. Maybe it will be Elon Musk deciding to come back uh, and, and re-enter this market. But at some point, somebody's going to come along and, and create a, a social media company to cater to conservatives if they're not being, uh, if they're being treated poorly by the, the, the big guys in the market. And those big guys won't stay big I I as long. So uh, that, that's a, a comeback, but, you know, is, it a is that a little bit too, um, too much of a rosy picture here? Well, for yeah, the short answer is yes, yes it is. It's that we're talking about a, I, I don't want to be hypercritical of position, but it's Pollyannish, simply, because that's not how government in 2022 works. We're talking about substantial barriers to entry. We're not talking about my setting up my computer and building a website and watching it take off. We're talking about Amazon having entire server farms, being able, and the, the commoditization of you and me and everybody else. So any economist is going to say, yeah, hey, if we could have a pure free market, let's do that. Then we don't need these laws. We don't, if we had a pure free market, do we even need Section 230, mm -hmm. right, in the federal law to outline these guidelines? But 230 in and of itself is a perfect example of the government creating and working in collusion with these, these tech companies to frame public policy that effectively serves as barriers to entry, whether it be cost or infrastructure or even ideology. I mean, when you if you read the actual text of Section 230, the, it go, Congress deems that the Internet presents new opportunities and it's a free market upon which the American economy is predicated. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the thrust of it. Well, just because Congress says something is a free market does not make it so. All right. Yeah. All right. So if, if we you know, want to think that there's a, a problem, what, if anything, might be a, a solution uh, to this problem? And, you know, I guess we could start in, in Washington. Is, is there something uh, we've talked about the Section 230 of the, the Communications Decency Act. Some people, um, you know, some, some Republicans like Josh Hawley is, is saying, like, maybe we need to repeal that. So is there something that could be done in Washington um, and, and that could be helpful here? And if so, what, in, in your opinion? Yeah, and as an organization, we work with, the, with states, and I, our preference would be to have this be basically a state-based solution. We're, Section 230, if it, it is fine. There's, in, in our opinion, there's not a thing wrong with Section 230. 
it it it's it's perfectly adequate. It addresses the need and the issue that it was created to to address. If you, I don't know if you recall, but Section 230 came about because of a lawsuit against um, uh, Prodigy. You remember the old Prodigy uh, message boards? And if you remember the the movie The Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio, he played the character uh, Jordan Belfort. It was actually Jordan Belfort who sued Prodigy for allowing particularly uh, damning comments about him. And so then Congress stepped in and said, we may, maybe we don't want the internet to be the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And so, they, so Congress wrote Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And it basically does, the, the effect is to do two things. One, it says, yes, you can operate um, social media platforms, and then it was Prodigy, and today it's Twitter or TikTok or whatever. But you can basically police yourselves. If you want, you are allowed to remove content that is lewd, lascivious, filthy, harassing, uh, excessively violent, or otherwise objectionable. And we'll shelve otherwise objectionable, because I bet we're going to get to that in the uh, in, in later on in the conversation, because that's where this all hinges. So anyway, and then what it does, it blesses the social media companies with what they call a liability gift, that social media, Facebook, cannot be held liable for content that appears on its website or on its platform posted by third-party people, users. Whereas if they were, and and so they are basically curators or um, publish their they're curators or publishers of content, or not publishers, but they're curators, they're platforms. Whereas the Washington Post or the New York Times has um, does not enjoy that same liability gift in the way that a social media does. So, so somebody posts something on Facebook that defames me, I can't sue Facebook. But if the New York Times does something, writes something that defames me, I can absolutely sue the New York Times if I can prove it's demonstrably false. Right. Right. So that was that's the crux of Section 230. And there's some other provisions in there regarding um, criminal law and liability, et cetera. So at the federal level, as an organization and personally, Section 230, I I think, is good law. I I don't think we need to break up big tech. Um, I don't think that's the right position. It's we don't want to bring antitrust uh lawsuits against big tech i don't think they rise to that level and as an economist you know full well and you probably noticed at no point am i going to call them monopolies you know as a free market guy government creates monopolies markets don't create monopolies and so i don't want to call facebook and social media monopoly so i don't think antitrust law uh the sherman act applies in these cases um so I'm, I'm, we're okay leaving Section 230 as it is. It sets the rules. It sets the ground rules. It keeps everybody in bounds. Well, you, as you mentioned, Heartland also primarily works with, with states. And so I know Heartland's been uh, working, suggesting, or, or, or has some offers uh, or some suggestions for states that they might be able to do. And at one point, you, know, you have to sort of explain this a little bit because these are massive worldwide company uh, companies. Like what 
could uh, like one state actually sort of like do here in, in, in response to actions by uh, the, the, these massive companies? And then furthermore, like you know, you might wonder. Well, if the federal government already has laws on this, it, it, wouldn't those laws sort of supersede anything that the states do? So what might the states, uh, if they wanted to do something, uh, do here? Well, you know, we were talking before we started about Florida and Texas. Well, Texas, both Florida and Texas, and then prior to that, actually, Utah passed a bill, but the Governor Cox in Utah vetoed that, that bill, that law. Well, anyway, um, Texas and Florida both passed laws that said social media companies can't censor their users. Um, Florida's case was a little bit different because it basically it was a carve out for um, politicians. But in Texas, HB 20, which is the subject of federal litigation currently, as, as we speak, it's in federal courts. Well, anyway, HB 20 basically said any Texan who's been censored by social media for their political viewpoints can sue uh, for un under their tort laws, okay. effectively, um, called a private cause of action. Um, and then similarly, the bill also said that, um, that uh, so in addition to suing users, the AG can also investigate and provide, provide um, recourse to users. Um, part of the Texas law is currently in effect, actually, um, the part that's not is where Texas actually came out and said, as we alluded, as I mentioned earlier, um, declared social media platforms common carriers for the purposes of statute and, and uh, legality. So, so that, again, Texans can currently sue, but it is not, social media is not a uh, common carrier while it's being litigated. Mm -hmm. So that's one approach, it, we, and we like that approach the best, but other states, you know, Tennessee introduced a bill that would have yanked um, tax credits from, from any company that censors its users or deplatforms or demonetizes its users. So states have various means to get at this issue, to try to, again, like in the way Section 230 does, keep the companies inbound and to ensure that we're having robust debates online. Another suggestion that I've seen advanced by the former CEO now turned author Vivek Ramaswamy was very intriguing to my mind and that is to draw on the idea and you've mentioned this a little bit earlier but the fact that you know perhaps these companies are being recruited by the government to do something that the government can't isn't allowed to do themselves and it turns out that that's we already have legal precedent in place that the government's not allowed to do that especially in criminal areas if the police can't conduct a search they can't ask some private citizen to go break in and search somebody's house when they can't couldn't get a search warrant and that would get thrown out and that's already well sort of established under our laws is is that a possibility and is this something that maybe states could help facilitate well i my reaction to that is I, I, I'm reluctant to endorse such an idea again because that feels that we're empowering government to step in and to say, hey, we're going to tell you what you must say and do. And I think that's a very dangerous road to go down, especially because cooperation with government often leads to collusion with government, as we, as, as I noted before, when you had 
the Biden administration colluding with Facebook to manage message surrounding COVID. So I, I'm reluctant. In, in the Supreme Court has been abundantly clear, there's no shortage of jurisprudence saying, no, the government cannot work in concert to get a private actor to do something that is otherwise prohibited doing. And, and you know, to be honest, that's an issue that does come up because it is, we're, if I'm being honest, that's a fine line we're walking when we talk to policymakers as well. They, they want to say, well, isn't your solution basically the government telling private companies what they must and must not have on their platforms? And that's when I mentioned, you know, we're talking about political viewpoints, turning them into or defining them as common carriers for the purposes of First Amendment rights. It's a first principle question. Well, we only have a few seconds left. So is there anything you, know, you, you want to say sort of in, in summary here? Yeah, real quick. You know, in the, I made this point before, was do I think companies have First Amendment rights that the social media companies um, uh, enjoy? And, and on some level, yes, I agree. They absolutely do in the same way that Washington Post does or the same way that the New York Times does. But the reality is in exchange for that, for the liability gifts they do receive under Section 230, they kind of forfeit that First Amendment right because Section 230 says you're a platform, you're not a publisher. And that's what we're trying to do and advocate on this position is that, yes, they are private companies, but First Amendment rights of its users are sacred. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this uh, with us today, Cameron. And thanks you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.